The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. I realize I probably need another week or so to post an entirely new episode on this space. And so tonight, what I will do is bring back two of my favorites, two of my favorite pieces that I've done over the last year and a half, especially given that the audience has grown so much just in the past few months. Many of you will not have heard this, uh, either of these pieces. The first is probably my favorite of the autobiographical pieces that I've done here, and it's just called Loneliness, probably has more of myself in it and more succinctly than anything I have ever done. And the second part, which will probably begin around minute 36, is uh, another example, another sampling of advice from on creativity. And here we will hear from uh, Beethoven, the mythologist Joseph Campbell, and the American poet's W.S. Merwin and W.D. Snodgrass, among many others, interspersed there as reactions to what they say. So sit back and enjoy the creativity for tonight. So one of the things you may have heard me mention from time to time, I guess, has become uh, a mantra of mine, which is that art, of whatever kind, uh, its purpose for me is, on the one hand, empathy, the ability to see and experience and understand and maybe even come to identify with the lives and experiences of other people. And the other is simply the alleviation of loneliness, whether for uh, the artist or for whoever is reading or listening or watching or viewing, whatever the art is. Uh, Those are the big things for me. And while I've tried as much as possible to not make my own mantra or my own uh, standard, everybody else's. I've never tried to say that that is the only thing that art should ever be viewed as. Uh, It's come to my attention recently that I assumed that that was the case more than I should have for other people. And I just wanted to look at today where that may have come from in my own mind, how uh, how that came to be. And it might make it easier also then, if I try to investigate it in myself, to try and see how other people have come to other conclusions as well. And as far as I can tell, the story begins when I was about four years old. As my mother tells it, I was sitting on her lap and she was reading stories to me, probably before bedtime. And at one point I kept turning to her and saying, can you say that again? Can you say that again? Can you repeat what you just said? And it dawned on them, it dawned on my mother and then on my parents that I was hard of hearing and that I, by the time they caught on to it, uh, I couldn't hear very much at all. And I think about that time an awful lot, uh, what it was like as a small child to 
basically be living in a realm of silence and not really knowing or understanding or being able to convey the idea that maybe that's not the world that I should have been living in. I didn't know that I was missing out on sound. And so I think of myself sitting around in quiet and what that must have been like, what, what I liked about it and maybe what I didn't like about it. And it turned out that uh, between the ages of four and I believe 12, I had about uh, six or eight surgeries on my ears uh, to correct that. But before, uh, usually I would have a surgery and the lead up to a new one would be a, a horrendous ear infection, a horrible pain. And so that sometimes before I could get the surgery, but when I was still in the midst of one of these ear infections, I would be stuck up at night by myself, unable to sleep. And I remember it would be comfortable at one point lying on one side and turning over again, lying on the other side. And this would just go on and on. Um, the way I remember it now is that it went on for days. I'm sure that's not true. It was probably uh, a night or two uh, every now and again. But the nights were so intense and so memorable in their own way that uh, they have sort of taken over memories of mine. But one time I do remember the, the great comfort that I derived from listening to uh, Larry King on the radio. He was broadcasting while a hurricane was going on on the East Coast. And I basically spent all night listening to these voices uh, from somewhere else in the country, from somewhere else in the world. And that was my comfort against silence, against the quiet, against the, the pain that I was feeling in my head. And I really do wonder if the, the final manifesto, I was always writing manifestos starting when I was 19 or 20 or so, and I got sick of them because I saw how useless grand statements really were, bullet point statements about art or anything. But I wonder if the one that I finally landed on, which is uh, alleviation of loneliness and empathy, I wonder if it started back then when I was uh, in a world that was completely quiet and where I couldn't hear other people and probably couldn't speak to them as well either because I couldn't hear them. Although uh, my mother tells me that when I would go to the doctor, I was very uh, adept at reading lips, which is a nice thing to think about too. Um, one of the tests he gave, uh, I was, I don't think I was trying to trick the doctor, but um, he was asking me to repeat whatever it was that he was saying. And I was, and I was proud that I was able to do it. But when he covered his mouth, obviously I couldn't do it. So I could read his lips and repeat what he was saying. But if he covered his mouth, I could not see it and I could not repeat it. And that's when they really knew there was an issue. Um, and this came back to me again lately, watching uh, Ken Burns' documentary about baseball. And just a handful of stories, one of them which stayed with me from when I first saw the series when I was 13 or 14 years old, was about Ty Cobb, the great uh, player for the Detroit Tigers, uh, grumpy, violent, uh, horrible human being, but a great baseball player. And there's the story of him traveling with another player, because that's what you did. You shared hotel rooms. I guess you still could these days, but it's hard to imagine millionaire players being forced to share hotel rooms with other players. And it was after a game and Ty Cobb was going back to his rooms with the player that he shared a room with while they traveled. And the, the other player went to take a bath. And Cobb just flew into a rage and had to pull him out of the bathtub. And because usually Ty Cobb took his bath or his shower first. And the line that always stayed with me was he yelled at this player that he's pulled out of the bathtub dripping wet and naked. He, pulled, he, uh, he yelled to him, don't you understand? I have to be first. I have to be the first 
do these things. He had to be first in everything. He, everything was a competition for him. And the next one is about Walter Johnson, the great pitcher for the uh, Washington Senators. There's the story, first of all, of, of how he was discovered by scouts who were wandering the country, uh, and they ended up in Idaho. And they found this amazing pitcher, I believe, in the early, uh, early 20th century, 1905 or 6 or so. And the report came back that there was this astounding pitcher out in Idaho who throws faster than anybody ever has and who has the best control of anybody ever. And they said uh, they know that he has the best control of anybody they've ever seen because if he didn't, there would be dead bodies all over Idaho uh, who would have been killed by this guy's pitches. But uh, Walter Johnson never won a World Series until uh, the last few years of his career. And the story is told that he got to Game 7 of the World Series. It was a tie game, and uh, the Washington Senators were at home, so they had the bottom of, bottom of the inning to score and win each time. And they brought Walter Johnson in to pitch the ninth, the 10th, and then the 11th inning, maybe even the 12th. To, uh, to try and win the game. All he needed to do was get through the innings, and then his team would be able to take the bottom of the inning to win the game. And he was on one day's rest. He had started the game the day before, and he did it, ninth, 10th, and 11th, maybe the 12th inning, and they won in, in the bottom of one of those innings. And the story said that he uh, was weeping as he walked off the field. Now, these are the kinds of stories that I have always attached myself to. These are the ones that I have always remembered. These are the things that I, nowadays, uh, pour onto my wife, um, maybe when she doesn't want to hear about baseball or whatever it is right now. But these are the things that, that I have become attached to, these, to me, extremely human stories. And it... It struck me again lately when I was sitting back one day wondering, do I really need to spend time outside of writing poetry? Do I need to spend time writing prose at all? Do I need to be writing short stories? Do I need to be writing novels and trying to get them published because it is such a hassle trying to get them published? Do I really need to spend so much time doing this? when I could very easily give that time to more poetry or, uh, or just to my family. Do, do I need to do that? And on the same day, I came across that uh, passage from Song of Myself that I posted here uh, about a week or so ago. I think it was entitled, uh, Walt Whitman Affirms the World. I read that on the porch and, uh, and was just astounded by it. And I came back inside and I put on Ken Burns' baseball again. And I watched the half hour or so that he spends retelling the Black Sox scandal of 1919 when uh, the Chicago White Sox were a, a massively underpaid team there uh, and they ended up getting involved with gamblers. And they ended up agreeing to throw the World Series to get paid a bunch of money. And the way that Ken Burns and the, the, the narration, the, the photographs, the commentators, all of it, the way all of it worked together was so moving to me that I realized, especially right after the experience of Whitman, that I need to write poetry. The, the impulse is always there. The compulsion to write poetry is always there. It has always been there. But the need to tell stories that aren't poetry, the need to tell stories in prose or just here in this podcast, the need to tell stories that way is also something that I have always felt a compulsion and a need to do. I have felt, as many writers say, people stirring inside of me all the time uh, voices, situations, uh, emotions, histories, all of these things. 
and it has never left me. And so I came to the conclusion that uh, even if these things never get published, I do need to keep trying to tell these stories. Uh, it is just something buried deep within me, and I wonder if it isn't in part buried within me because of that uh, early experience of silence. And when I went to think about it some more, uh, especially in connection with what I said at the beginning of this episode, that uh, it, I was reminded recently that not everyone approaches reading or art in this way. Uh, I was, I just made a list of things that, uh, that I have become attached to, simply not because of the academic interests, not because of the social interests, like the, if you know about these things, you'll be able to improve the world. Um, I, I have attached myself to these things because they are shortcuts to human lives and stories and emotion. And here's just a list of them. Uh, one of them is uh, the, the books that Studs Terkel has done, where he just interviews people about their lives. And so within the course of 500 pages, you have, say, uh, 30 or 40 people being interviewed, just talking about themselves. When I talk about William Trevor, the Irish short story writer, or when I talk about William Shakespeare, while I talk about how great they are as writers, usually what I actually mean by that, what I actually say, what I actually focus on, and I think I've said it a few times here, is that the two of them have created such a huge human community with their characters and their stories, whether the plays or the short stories, that it astounds me. And, and in reading them and in experiencing them, uh, whatever loneliness I feel uh, is alleviated. That, that is what I go to. Uh, Shakespeare is great poetry, but he used great poetry in the service of creating human beings on the page. Um, I've mentioned the magazine called Lapham's Quarterly before, which is just uh, a year, uh, four times uh, yearly anthology of, of voices from history. It would take years to uh, compile or find all of these voices in any other way. And here I have, four times a year, about 200 pages of voices from all over the place, all countries, all times in history, right there in my lap. There are uh, podcasts like Desert Island Discs from the BBC and another one from the BBC called In Our Time. In Our Time is just uh, a gathering of, you might say, scholars to talk about a historical event or a historical person or a book or a movie or something culturally relevant or relevant to science or history. And for a half hour or 45 minutes, because they're outside the classroom and because the host is so good, you hear extremely intelligent people talking about extremely important things in an immensely humane and direct way that, again, it would take years and years to find otherwise. Um, just go look up uh, uh, in our time and look at all the subjects they have there. It is a real, again, a shortcut to humanity and history. Uh, as uh, Marlon Brando says in Apocalypse Now, it is a diamond thunderbolt uh, straight into the brain. Uh, it is a uh, uh, an impossible shortcut to to humanity, at least for me. And Desert Island Discs is the same thing. Uh, when I discovered this, it's it's basically a half hour again, or 45 minutes, of an interviewer talking to someone who is known, someone who is culturally known, uh, an artist, a politician, an actor, uh, whoever it is. And you hear what their favorite music is, and in between the music, they just talk about their life. And again, empathy. Uh, you hear more personal stories told succinctly than, than I can think of finding anywhere else 
and it would be difficult to find it anywhere else. And if we want to talk about empathy again, it is that uh, the surprise I felt, just one example out of thousands by now, I believe Desert Island Disc started in the mid-40s, and nearly all the episodes are now on uh, now online. And for a while there, I just downloaded as many of them as I could and listened to them. And I was astounded to hear that Margaret Thatcher, one of her favorite pieces of music, is Beethoven's fifth piano concerto, The Emperor. And that is also one of my favorite pieces of music. And so I never thought to have anything in common with Margaret Thatcher, but there we are. And that might sound like a small example, but it uh, it wasn't a small example to me. It was extremely revealing. And the last example I have here is uh, Andrew Solomon, the wonderful uh, writer who wrote a, a great book about depression, but also an immense book about parenting called Far From the Tree. And it's about 800 pages uh, about parents and their gifted and or difficult children and simply what it is like to parent these children. And I've spoken to people who've read this book who read it primarily for the advice it would give you or the insight it would give you into parenting. Um, and even though I am a parent now and I read it uh, while I was a parent, after my daughter was born, I read it again primarily as a collection, a huge collection, a huge uh, compendium of a human population that otherwise would be impossible to find uh, elsewhere. And, and that's striking uh, to realize that not everyone, certainly not everyone goes to just my examples, uh, Ken Burns, in our time, Desert Island Discs, Lapham's Quarterly, Studs Turkle, William Trevor, William Shakespeare, Andrew Solomon. Probably other writers would have other lists of this kind, um, and even those who might have the same list wouldn't go to them for the same reasons that I have just mentioned. The alleviation of loneliness, the looking for uh, the best or the most succinct expressions of human life and experience and emotion, and uh, empathy, understanding these other lives. And so the reason then, the, the, uh, the reason that I need to look for these things is telling as well. Um, if I was four years old and living in a realm of silence, you would think that when I came out of it, I would then be in a realm of sociability. I would just uh, be happy to go from one person to another. I would not be the wallflower type. But in fact, I am the wallflower type. I am the fly on the wall. And so the reason that I'm looking for these shortcuts to people and these shortcuts to emotion and experience, these shortcuts to uh, access to huge uh, populations of people, is because on some level I probably am a fairly lonely person. And that's not really anybody's fault. And if anything, it is the reason that I write. And so uh, I'm willing to pay that price. It's not a terrible price. It helps just to put a name to it. So that when I came across uh, a comment by Harold Bloom, where he says that uh, Shakespeare's character, uh, Falstaff, is more real to him than most people he encounters every day in his life. I sort of understood what he meant. And when he says in general that uh, his book, The Western Canon, or that his ideas of trying to make reading lists for people of the best writing is not only that there are, there's only so much time for us to read, but also there is only so much time that we all have to simply get to know other people. And in my case, and I'm sure in Bloom's case, if you are spending 
quite a bit of time reading and another bit of time with your family. There is also only so much energy and only so much ability that certain people can even have to be social face-to-face -face directly. Um, I, when, when I look at, at uh, popular notions of, of how relationships or of how our views of sex should be viewed, um, especially by conservative people who say that uh, sex and uh, children and all of this should only be bound in marriage um, and not outside of that. And certainly other versions of these ideas as well. It strikes me that this, these notions of what relationships and friendships and uh, uh, experiences of sex, uh, all of these are based on uh, an ideal of what relationships and friendships and sex should be. And they're made up by people who are social. Uh, it strikes me, especially this year, after reading so much from uh, Walt Whitman's biography, that uh, when we talk about, we're not sure what kind of physical relationships he ever really had. And when it comes down to maybe he was just someone filled with longing and had an intense uh, fantasy and emotional life, on top of this amazing poetic voice that he could utter these astounding things about and brag about his physical relationships, perhaps in a way that they were never acted out. Uh, especially then, especially with that example, it strikes me more and more that there are many, many people in the world, they might even outnumber the sociable ones, who will never have a decent relationship, who will never have a marriage, who will never have a peaceful marriage, who will never have children, or if they do, they will never get used to having had children. They will not be good parents. Um, there are these, these ideals that we have for family or civic or social life are really just that. They are ideals. And most people uh, don't uh, go very far with them. For me, I've never gone very far with being a social person. I don't know really anymore that I'm shy. It's just that I just don't do it. And I, or if I do, I don't do it well. And it just needs to be acknowledged that that's, that's fine. And that if uh, my entry into humanity is through books or through the things that I've mentioned, outside of my family, if, if my entry into humanity is through uh, books and podcasts and documentaries, and then what I'm able to make of those into poetry, well then, what's so bad about that? I recall a few years ago when I had something like, uh, something like, not, not a breakdown, but something close to it. And the thing that pushed me out of it was, of all things, was watching a documentary about the life of Franklin Roosevelt. And I remember uh, like I was watching it while I was in the bath, and Roosevelt had just died, and, and they were playing clips of, of his funeral train going from Georgia up north to, uh, to D.C., I believe, and then up to New York. And whatever the narration was doing and the footage and, and the rest of it just hit me so hard that I just wept. Just uh, in, in a way, I never felt more, uh, more pathetic, but also uh, more human in a way. Just sitting there sobbing in a bathtub over the, over the death of Franklin Roosevelt and the effect that his death had on other people. And that, is, and that is knowing full well that a documentary is not a person and that uh, if I had met Franklin Roosevelt, he may not have liked me and I may not have liked him. Um, so many of 
our stories about other people, our anecdotes about other people, or our links to the past, uh, they, they, they presuppose that you will never know these people, that the story is what is important, not necessarily what it would have been like seeing them face to face. So that while on the one hand I can understand people who are wary of technology, they're, they're, they don't think it's healthy that certain people only talk to other human beings online or through their phone, or that people are only able to do it on their computer or on their phone, or while hiding their identity, or even taking on another identity, if you want to call that lying under certain circumstances. On the one hand, I agree with that suspicion, and I think it's probably not healthy. But, not, but in another sense, uh, what, why is it so much better to, uh, to see someone in person sometimes, especially if you don't think you're capable of doing that? Uh, life is so strange. Life is so long. It is so... Uh, it is so filled with chance and doubt that if you find beauty and meaning uh, with another person through the intercessor of a screen or just a phone or uh, whatever it is, and if you know that you will never meet them down at a restaurant, um, on some level, uh, each person has to be responsible for their own health, but on some level, I don't see a problem with that anymore. Uh, if, if your alternative is to not be in contact with anyone at all, um, I certainly have no way of, uh, of judging that position. And so to the final thing, uh, it led me to loneliness and empathy as a way of talking about art. And I came across this remark in the New York Review of Books, and they're talking about the poetry of John Ashbery. And they give a quote uh, uh, from one of his poems. And the, the reviewer says, uh, like Stephen Mallarmé, who enjoined us to remember that a poem is not a newspaper, John Ashbery attempts a parallel version of the English language in which a sentence doesn't merely exist to communicate its lexical meaning in the shortest amount of time. I'll read that again. John Ashbery attempts a parallel English in which a sentence does not merely exist to communicate its lexical meaning in the shortest amount of time. Now, I've quoted here before uh, another remark I came across by a scholar who said that in the past, poets and poetry, uh, poetry was a means of conveying emotion and nowadays they are relics of language. And I would put this comment about John Ashbery in that same thing. Um, I've said before, especially recently, I've compared poetry to the newspaper, to the news. It's worth saying that there is a middle ground between what a newspaper does and uh, what avant-garde or experimental poetry does. And I believe, if I can bring it around to this full circle, it is that uh, four years old, immersed in silence, uh, I get going with talk radio uh, and listening to other people's voices. That listening to other people's voices and other stories continues with the Ken Burns stuff from when uh, I first became aware of them at 11 or 12 or 13 years old. It goes on to all of the things I mentioned, all of the basic things that are basically anthologies of people talking or of stories like William Trevor or Shakespeare's plays, collections of people talking and telling stories and the comfort that we can derive from knowing people who are created so well or recorded so well in books or elsewhere that we feel that we have made a connection with humanity somehow. And all of that comes back to, at least for me, and I wonder if this is true, as to why I prefer to write narrative poetry, poetry that 
is basically comprehensible, that you can basically read out loud and understand, and that tells a story, um, which sounds very old-fashioned these days, but I wonder if that is the uh, route it took for me to get there. And that in my own way, writing short monologues or short stories or short historical scenes or longer poems is my way of adding uh, my own voice to those things, to someone else out there who is also just looking for a voice, someone else who is up late at night and cannot sleep for whatever reason, or who is at school or at their job or just walking around and does not feel capable of interacting with people face to face but still needs some sort of human contact. Um, I wonder if that is ultimately what I've been trying to contribute, if I can. Well, here we are again with The Poet Speaks. Uh, the first quotation comes from Joseph Campbell. Actually, these first two will sort of be linked together to my common theme of how exactly Homer takes out the garbage. Uh, these are wonderful quotes from, uh, from Joseph Campbell and W.S. Merwin, uh, reflecting on their youth. The first one here from Campbell, and this is about his decision to give up a formal education, and instead to live on as little as possible and to educate himself. And he says, My decision to follow this course came one day in Paris while I was sitting in the little garden of Cluny, where the Boulevard Saint-Michel and Saint-Germain come together. It suddenly struck me, What in heaven's name am I doing? I don't even know how to eat a decent, nourishing meal. And here I am learning what happened to vulgar Latin when it passed into Portuguese and Spanish and French. And uh, for those who don't know Campbell's biography, uh, there's a wonderful uh, book about him by Stephen and Robin Larson where they go into uh, his college years pretty well. And this is at a point where I believe uh, Campbell finishes his master's degree and then uh, comes back to America and decides not to pursue a PhD. What he does do, and I think it's sort of a uh, halfway between a legend and uh, or apocryphal and what actually happened was that he was able to spend the equivalent of the years of the Great Depression living in Woodstock, New York, basically uh, on as little as possible um, and just read, read, read. And what he ended up doing after that was getting a job at Sarah Lawrence College, which is where he was for uh, many decades. And it wasn't really until the end of, of that time uh, that uh, Bill Moyers got a hold of him and they did the power of myth together. Um, well, I'll just read uh, W.S. Merwin's before I comment on both. Uh, this is what W.S. Merwin says. But if someone were to say to me, what would you think of as a good way to live? I wouldn't have any answer at all. I thought I really should find the answer to that. I had this place to live in France, a little farm, and I thought, I'm going to go there. I realized I didn't know how to grow even one lettuce plant. I'd eaten food all my life, and I wouldn't be able to recognize it as it grew. It was about time I learned something as simple and obvious as that. So I went there and spent several years just trying to grow the things that I ate. 
and to make sense of things of the kind. A lot of my book, The Lice, came during the time that I was trying to work that out. I still haven't found any eternal answers. What is happening in the world is terrible and irreversible, and that history is probably a doomed enterprise. But in the meantime, it's important to live in the world as completely as we can. Now, I can't remember when W.S. Merwin was interviewed and when he... So what, what part of history of the last 50 or 60 or 70 years he thought uh, was terrible and irreversible. And I guess that's also the point. Um, both uh, in the idea that whatever he was talking about uh, actually has not destroyed the world or that you can think that uh, every moment, uh, every day, something in the news brings something about that seems terrible and irreversible, and how are we going to deal with that? Um, when I first posted these online a long time ago, these two quotations, uh, I was uh, sort of the cheerleader for them. Look at these young intellectual types suddenly realizing that they don't know how to make uh, a good meal for themselves. They don't know how to grow food for themselves. And they're getting away from academia, or they're um, getting away from merely being intellectuals or poets or writers or readers. But then you realize what Campbell did. He basically hid out in a cabin and continued to do what he was doing. He just wasn't getting a PhD for it. Uh, he was, as he would later coin the phrase, following his bliss. But um, I'm not sure that uh, uh, he got around to learning how to make himself a decent meal. Maybe he did. Um, in any case, the, the idea of leaving academia just so he could learn how to make himself a decent meal, um, he just ended up teaching anyway. Uh, the point of it seems to have been not learning how to make myself a decent meal or learning how to do uh, mundane or, uh, or just merely nourishing things. The point seemed to be to find what he should be doing himself. Um, which really doesn't have much to do uh, with cooking. Uh, it does have something to do with realizing that, uh, for him, learning what happened to vulgar Latin when it passed into Portuguese and Spanish and French was simply not what he should be doing with his life. There were people who continued to study that exact process, and that is what they want to be doing with their lives. And it's sort of important to realize that uh, both, uh, both trajectories, so long as they are the ones that the people want to be doing themselves, those are the ones that they should be doing. Um, it isn't, as I saw it a few years ago, uh, sort of a rah-rah, I'm getting out of school and going to do my own thing. Um, and I guess I would say the same thing about uh, W.S. Merwin as well, even though he does seem to have uh, gotten his plot of land and learned how to grow the things that he ate, uh, he still says, um, he starts off by saying, what, uh, what do you think of as a good way to live? And at the end, even though he did part of what he wanted to, he still says, I haven't found any eternal answers. And I don't really know that there are any eternal answers. I don't know that it's really worthwhile anymore to say that whatever the present moment is, is terrible and irreversible, and that history is probably a doomed enterprise. I had a fun time a while back collecting quotations from people who were basically saying, uh, the world is doomed. Look at, look at how uh, squalid and uh, superficial these people are. And there was a nice moment with two quotations that if you sort of uh, fudged a few of the details a bit, it would be hard to realize that one of them came from the 6th century and the other one came from 1928 or so. This is just what people have always thought. 
and it's almost um, uh, an absurd exercise to even let your mind rest on a thought like that for very long. And it's even more um, instructive, I think, that uh, W.S. Merwin says what he does. Uh, what is a good way to live? I'm not sure I will do this thing, this one thing for myself to try and figure it out. I don't have the answers. I think what's happening in the world is terrible and irreversible. I think that history is probably a doomed enterprise. But in the meantime, it's important to live in the world as completely as we can. I think that is an immensely powerful lesson for a poet or a creative person or someone who thinks of themselves as an intellectual. It's an amazingly powerful thing to uh, to hear. Uh, one always comes back to the line from, from Yeats where he has to say that perfection in the life means that perfection in the work will never happen. Or that if you have perfection in the work, that means that your life will be uh, chaos and, uh, and will be uh, a failure. And just looking around, not just at poets, but at entrepreneurs or just at neighbors who are out cutting their grass and knowing um, even the tiniest bit about them, I really don't know that perfection of either is possible. There's always been, um, I guess, I mean, for me, it's the last 20 years or so, but I'm sure it's just been part and parcel with the whole idea of uh, the self-help industry, that, that one should find balance in one's life, that uh, if you want uh, to quiet your anxieties, or if you want to worry less, or if you don't want to be worrying about money so much, or if you don't want to be worrying about your reputation, or your position, or a title, or what your family thinks of you, all of these things. What you need to do is uh, find balance. Uh, the way to wholeness is to find balance, and I guess part of this comes from whatever, whatever uh, drips and drops of uh, Buddhism, I guess, uh, that one might get or uh, Hinduism or Taoism or something like that, that one should have balance in their life. Um, but I'm not really sure that that is the answer either. I struggle with this as someone who wants to write poetry about people who are living conflicted and tense and uh, uh, desperate kind of lives. Um, I don't mean hugely dramatic, uh, tense and desperate kinds of lives. Um, it could just be about someone who can't pay the bills. I remember a, a miraculous short story by William Trevor. I can't remember the name of the title right now, but it was simply about um, how an old couple in Ireland had uh, hired a man to paint their house and the guy came over and eventually painted the house, but uh, but it, somehow it was shortly after the house painting was done, the husband died, um, and as far as the wife knew, the house painter had been paid for his work. But the house painter kept saying, you know, um, I didn't tell you this after your husband died, I didn't want to be rude about it, but enough time has passed, uh, he never paid me, I sort of need that money. And the entire story was this, this tension between these two people and this, uh, this poor laborer who needed the money, apparently, and this poor old woman who also needed the money. Sometimes that is as much drama as you need. Um, who was unsure, did her husband pay the money? or? Is this guy uh, trying to cheat me out of money that I desperately need? Um, as someone who is trying to tell stories like that and who wants to stay in touch not only with 
my own conflicts and my own inner turmoils, um, I worry about finding balance. I worry about being completely at peace. I worry about what I would find there and not only what I would write, but what I would do with myself if uh, I came to that point. Would I still care about other people? I don't know. Um, there's something that Hemingway said, uh, something like, uh, as a, as a man, as a human being, you are correct in judging people, but as a writer, you are not. If you're going to write about them, the judgmental part of your brain, uh, has to be turned off. You need to just tell the story. And I think it's more important, uh, for many of us, if we stayed on that wavelength, as it were, um, I don't know what the point of searching for perfection or balance in one's life really is, um, unless you're going to become a monk, unless you are someone who can literally divide up their day uh, into a set schedule that is never deviated from. There's no sudden surprises. Uh, you don't have a kid who's uh, doing this or that uh, on a Friday, but not on a Wednesday. Um, you don't have a job that takes you this to this place or that place. You don't have friends that suddenly call up out of the blue. There's nothing spontaneous going on, um, except what's going on in your own head, I suppose. Uh, outside of that kind of life, it seems that the point of things, the point of being creative, uh, or of being a parent, or of having a day job, um, isn't to come to peace with conflict to the point where you think that you might be able to eradicate conflict, or doubt, or sadness, or suffering, or anything of the kind. The point, and this is really the point I've always found in religion, um, the point isn't to eradicate the suffering or the sadness. It is to find a way to live with it decently, if that is indeed possible. Take another sip here. And I never really thought about it, but this third quotation actually uh, actually fits in very well. And it's a short one, so this episode of uh, The Poet Speaks will be rather short. This is from the poet W.D. Snodgrass. And he says, Advice to aspiring poets. If you can, get out. Everything else in the world pays better. Everything else in the world costs less. Not only in terms of money, but in terms of damage to your life. <laughs> Not only in terms of money, but in terms of damage to your life. Everything else in the world is more justly rewarded. If you can be happy doing something else, the chances are you will be happier doing something else. Now that's a bit extravagant and exaggerated and hyperbole. Um, and again, I don't think that's necessarily, I don't know what the circumstances were of uh, W.D. Snodgrass's life. But again, I don't think that's a matter of, of the poetry. Um, if you come to expect that uh, poetry will remunerate you uh, the way you think it's necessary, then when it doesn't, of course you're going to be upset. That's one of the huge things that I found in myself in the episodes on uh, 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 jealousy and uh, stubbornness. I go through all of that. It's kind of shameful for me to admit that, but it's true. I thought for so long that, um, not that I would become rich and famous, uh, but just that there would be, uh, that my poetry would uh, just pay the minimal bills, that's all. And of course, that has not happened. Um, I don't think it's about how disappointing it is to be a poet. I think it's more about not being able to 
square the circle of being a poet in a world where poetry just doesn't matter anymore or speak to people. I think that's the grave disappointment, really, that nobody is running around asking W.D. Snodgrass his opinion on the state of the world. Um, and I don't know of, uh, I can't think of any poet uh, that I'm in contact with right now who would read a thing like that and be like, all right, I'm out. Um, so I don't really know who he is talking to here. I assume this is from his Paris Review interview. Um, it's one of those things that you throw out uh, that's fairly negative, but I don't know that it says anything surprising. Um, it's what you would expect a poet to say or an artist to say. Um, and the operative phrase, of course, is if you can be happy doing something else. Well, I don't know that I could be happy doing something else. Um, and I don't know that I'm happy being a poet all the time. Uh, this is just what I know how to do. And um, anyway, I, I found that interesting, W.D. Snodgrass saying that. Maybe I can throw one more in here on the end from uh, Beethoven. Let's see. Uh, Beethoven says, everything I do apart from music is badly done and stupid. The true artist has no pride. He has a vague awareness of how far he is from reaching his goal. And while others may perhaps admire him, he laments the fact that he has not yet reached the point whither his better genius only lights the way for him like a distant sun. And he says, From my earliest childhood, my zeal to serve our poor suffering humanity in any way whatsoever, by means of my art, has made no compromise with any lower motive. The only reward I have asked for was the feeling of inward happiness which always attends such actions. I think those are three separate quotations. I'm not sure where they come from in his life. Um, but that's nice too. Everything I do apart from music is badly done and stupid. Uh, there is someone who is not, who gave up a long, long time ago. Uh, looking for balance in his creative life. Um, and if uh, you know anything about his biography, he had his ups and downs financially for sure. Um, I think there's one story of him just, of a visitor coming over and, and they find uh, one piano up on the legs, another on the floor with no legs on, uh, a lot of music sheets strewn around the room and, and uh, uh, and a pan for the bathroom somewhere nearby. And that's basically what he was doing. Um, that is an idea of how Homer takes out the garbage. Sometimes he just doesn't, and he keeps the door closed. Um, the true artist has no pride. Uh, that's another way of saying, I think, uh, the true artist also has no shame. I heard uh, uh, Robert Plant, I believe, saying uh, in an interview, that uh, if you're going to be in the music business and if you're gonna, just going to keep recording songs for decades and decades, you really can't have any shame. The best you can do is the best you can do in the moment. And I think the same thing of uh, Thomas Hardy. I just read him talking about how he selected the poems that he wanted to uh, be published. And he basically comes around to saying, uh, the poems that I really like are the ones, the poems of mine that I really like, that I'm proud of, are the ones that never get anthologized or mentioned. The ones that I'm unsure about, or that I actively dislike, are the ones that people mention and get into the anthology. So, what I basically do now is publish all of the poems, and I will let uh, time and history sort them out. Um, and I suppose uh, if I have an issue with pride or with shame, 
it's because uh, very few people do notice what I'm doing so that there's no reaction at all so that what I'm actually falling back on is uh, being paranoid about what I've done um, rather than moving on to the next thing. Um, if I had the weight of other people's reactions to it, I probably would care less. It's, it's an odd way to think, but that's, that's a good lesson too. No pride and no shame. And from my earliest childhood, Beethoven says, what he wants to do, my zeal to serve our poor, suffering humanity in any way whatsoever by means of my art. Or as W.S. Merwin put it, it's important to live in the world as completely as we can. And sometimes, for someone like Beethoven, for someone like W.S. Merwin, for someone like W.D. Snodgrass or Joseph Campbell or uh, anyone else you can think of, sometimes serving our poor suffering humanity in any way we can is only through our art. Sometimes that is the way to go. Sometimes that's the most that our minds and our souls and our bodies uh, can put up with. And that's also worth remembering these days uh, when it is now, at least on, uh, at least on Twitter where everyone is yelling, uh, where it is assumed that the only people that matter and the only actions that matter are the overtly political ones or the uh, overtly protesting ones, no matter what side you're on. Uh, the only ones that matter are the loud ones um, who are trying to change the world immediately right now as it is. Um, it's worth thinking that, uh, well, two things actually, and I'll end with this. It's worth thinking that sometimes what we need uh, when we're done talking to the masses and when we're done worrying about how ugly, as W.S. Merwin says, how ugly and irretrievable and horrible history and the present can appear, it's sometimes worth remembering, though, that what we need is... Uh, uh, a moment with our version of Beethoven, our private moment. Um, I don't think it's a matter of privilege to say that. I think quiet can be found anywhere. Uh, a decent, quiet moment with a word or a picture or a piece of music or just a loved one um, can be found wherever we are, and I think it's worth finding it. Um, and the other thing, too, is that uh, for years now, ever, ever, since, um, ever since my senior year in high school, when I was shown a documentary about T.S. Eliot by my teacher, and the very end of it showed a string quartet playing Beethoven's uh, Opus 132, I believe, uh, string quartet, string quartet number 15. Uh, the long 20-minute slow movement from that string quartet. Ever since that moment, I've been transfixed by that piece of music. Um, if there's any piece of music that sounds like an entire life, uh, all the ups and downs and the bittersweetness of it, the regret and beauty and happiness and joy of all, of all things, it is that piece of music. And... And I'll never forget, uh, actually the exact date was the first debate in 2008 between Joe Biden and Sarah Palin. Uh, probably something I would have watched and wasted, wasted two hours of my life on, but instead my wife and I were living in Brooklyn and we left work that day and we went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art to one of the... Uh, small chamber music halls off of the Egyptian wing, and we watched uh, a string quartet uh, play that piece by Beethoven, and I'll never forget it in all of my life. But at the same time, it occurred to me not too long ago, probably around the same time that I heard it live, that 
nearly everyone who has ever existed since Beethoven, I think, wrote the piece around 1820, 1825 or so, nearly everyone who has ever existed got by just fine without that piece of music by Beethoven. And uh, and that's okay. They don't need it. Some people need other things. I'm one of the people, <laughs> I'm one of the people who needs Beethoven's 20-minute uh, slow movement string quartet. That's the thing that will define me whenever I head on out of this world. Um, that's the piece of music I would want in my head. But it is so worth realizing that it isn't a piece of dogma. It isn't a rule. It isn't, uh, it isn't beautiful or eternal or powerful or meaningful to me because I want to make sure that everyone else hears it. It is worth it. Uh, it is worth it because it is private. And privacy is something we might edge back to these days. And here I am, I've gone to a half hour anyway, so happy Saturday night to all. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.